hello audience today we're gonna discuss all manner of things this will be a bit of an update episode but also some in-depth discussion on on bitcoin probably discussions that we haven't quite touched on and we're gonna get into details that haven't been discussed uh, before Ruga is in a bit of a rabbit hole right now of discovering uh, why Bitcoin is great and why Bitcoin is not so great. More so why it isn't great. Like it's not really much of a rabbit hole. It's it's more so like a, a black sheep kind of looking at itself in the mirror, asking itself, am I, why am I odd? You, you're really looking for, for reasons to understand. You're looking to understand whether or not our position is Bitcoin, in Bitcoin is justified. And that's, that's admirable. So we're gonna get into that. <laughs> All right, well, let's begin. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palwe, and the guests interviewed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are solely their own. The content discussed are intended to be for informational purposes only. So this started, let me, let me give you a little bit of a background, folks. Um, about a month and a half, two months ago, we were conducting, we were going to conduct a webinar on why Bitcoin is not a pyramid scheme. And in order to better prepare for that webinar, I wanted to make sure that I had my, my basis covered. Your um, facts straight. My facts straight, my basis covered and like arguments against Bitcoin, um, basically, you know, properly understood and having a defense against them. I'd heard all of the ones that came from a very uneducated standpoint, uh, mostly from not knowing uh, instead of, you know, saying uneducated standpoint. But I came across this one person. His uh, name is Coding Jesus. He has a YouTube channel on, he has, he has a YouTube channel. And he talked about why he doesn't like Bitcoin anymore. So I was enticed. Uh, I think the title was something else. You'll, you'll know when you see it. And he was stating reasons on why he is no longer a Bitcoiner. And oh man, his reasons were very valid because it came from him first being a Bitcoiner, experiencing Bitcoin in its very, very early stages, and then seeing the kind of role that Bitcoin took, the form that it took now, um, as well as some of the aspects that Bitcoiners usually talk about with respect to, um, you know, Bitcoin, and then like those not being true. So we'll uncover them in this particular episode. But when I learned about the actual weaknesses of Bitcoin, I was, uh, it felt like what I believed in, I couldn't believe in anymore because I was blinded by the fact that Bitcoin was perfect and nothing is perfect. And that video made me realize Bitcoin wasn't perfect. So I needed to take a long, hard look in the mirror and um, kind of examine the belief system that I had built around what I believed in. So there you go. That's the context. So, yeah, you're still going through that tunnel. Of I sorts. am. It feels like when, when you were just describing that journey of yours, I was just thinking that you're on some sinusoidal wave of uh, liking Bitcoin and, and not liking Bitcoin or like discovering Bitcoin and then undiscovering it. I can't say that I don't like Bitcoin. It's the reason why I was, I sent myself in such a, such an angst um, was because my beliefs were shattered. What I thought I knew, I didn't know. And um, I needed to collect my thoughts and 
you know, just explore more things about Bitcoin that I didn't care to explore before because I thought Bitcoin was perfect. So like I'm in the phase of rebuilding a different belief system that uh, is more aware of Bitcoin. And more aware and thus more balanced, I would say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right on. So let's, can you tell me a couple of the things that you stumbled upon? Yeah, for sure. So the first thing that he said is Bitcoin is no longer electronic cash. If you look at the Bitcoin white paper that Satoshi Nakamoto published in 2008, the opening title is Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Now, the the thing that Bitcoin, sorry, not Bitcoin, coding Jesus was saying is that he used Bitcoin as cash to pay his buddies for pizza or to do a coding job or whatever back in 2010, 2000, or late 2009, 2010, 2011, 2011 just very early because they used it as cash. Like he had his buddies all around the world and then they discovered Bitcoin. So they used to mine Bitcoin and then send Bitcoin to one another. Um, and it was fast. It was very, very fast. It was very, very cheap. And um, it was like Bitcoin did the same thing it does today with respect to global payments, but it was faster, cheaper, more efficient back then and used more so as cash. What Coding Jesus was saying now, saying is his first point was it's no longer used as cash because right now it's become in an investment vehicle for large institutions to park their money. And well, this first point wasn't as devastating because I was like, okay, this is it like it piqued my interest to think about Bitcoin differently. Uh, and then Coding Jesus went on to talk more about that particular aspect. So, yeah, that was the first one. Yeah, right on. I, I want to dive into that a little bit. Um, I, I know that critique that uh, Bitcoin doesn't look like what Satoshi Nakamoto uh, presented in the Bitcoin white paper 12 years ago. Is that a bad thing for Bitcoin? Like, should we even be adhering to the vision that Satoshi Nakamoto set forth in the white paper? Like, is that where the the trajectory of, of Bitcoin should go in the first place? And, and why and why not? Those are some very good questions to re- reflect on. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, it doesn't really matter what Satoshi Nakamoto wanted Bitcoin to be because... One, they're not really on the stage of Bitcoin anymore. They're not really controlling Bitcoin anymore. Even if they came back, they they can't contr- claim control over Bitcoin. There is a caveat there, and I'll get to that later. Um, and then uh, Bitcoin was left to the world to decide what to do with, and the world has decided what to do with it. So my counter argument, not counter argument uh, necessarily, caveat? but... No, no, not the caveat. My counter argument against what Coding Jesus said about Bitcoin, that it's not used as cash... It still uses cash for very large transactions because it is still way cheaper, faster, and more efficient to send very, very large transactions over the Bitcoin network. But for everyday people, they can't simply use Bitcoin to pay for pizza because of one, it's volatility, and two, because the way that it's being promoted by other people, like Bitcoin is a place to park your money, not necessarily not park, I won't say park uh, for everyday people, more so preserve your wealth because your regular currency, your fiat, is inflating in its purchasing, inflating in its circulating supply. Hence, um, you need to preserve your purchasing power, put it in something that is deflationary, which is Bitcoin. Right. So, yeah. What's that caveat? Um, my curiosity was oh, peaked the, when you said that. Oh, yeah. Well, the caveat is that if Satoshi Nakamoto comes back to the stage, to the world stage of Bitcoin, and has access to their wallet, which has, what, $75 billion 
worth of Bitcoin. I don't remember. 75 billion in Canadian dollar terms. Like, yeah, Yeah. we round this off. So we just say that Satoshi Nakamoto has a nice round, even 1 million Bitcoin just for simplicity's sake. Right. But it could be like plus or minus 200,000 Bitcoin. Okay, cool. So they have 1 million Bitcoin in their wallet. Like looking at the price of Bitcoin right now, that's 58 billion US dollars and around 75 billion Canadian dollars. Yeah, there we go. So like that was the caveat is if Satoshi Nakamoto comes back, they can't really influence the software, which again is one thing that Coding Jesus talked about uh, that put me off. But more so um, like if they came, if Satoshi Nakamoto came back to the stage and if they move their, uh, what, 75 billion Canadian dollars or 100 million Bitcoin, then that. No, no, no. Just 1 million. Oh, sorry. Is that 100 million? Oh my yeah. gosh. Okay. <laughs> one, if they, if they were to move any Bitcoin out of their wallet, it would... It would cause Bitcoiners and people around the world to, I would maybe panic a little bit. This I is definitely speculation think that though. it would cause a panic. Yeah. Yeah, it would cause a panic within me it, <laughs> it, because, well, it would just force me to like look at the situation and like, hmm, what's what's happening here? Like, is Satoshi Nakamoto A, alive and B, moving their Bitcoin? Or has someone else gotten access to Satoshi Nakamoto's keys? One of the implications is if Satoshi Nakamoto were to move their money then we'd actually probably know the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto within a couple months after that, just due to the the, uh, the yeah, blockchain if, forensics. Uh, well, shout out Larry Cameron. That's the only thing that, well, that was our previous episode, by the way. Um, so, no, well, okay, hang on. If, hang Satoshi on. Mark, if Satoshi Nakamoto was to move 1 million Bitcoin into an exchange, yes, we would know their identity. That's just something that I don't see them doing, though. Right. Because, like, that isn't the point of what they wanted Bitcoin to be. However, if they come back and decide, okay, Bitcoin's kind of gotten out of hand, now it's, quote-unquote, rich people and rich institutions putting their money in in Bitcoin because they don't want to put their money in in fiat. Like, this is still something I don't want. This is not what I envisioned for Bitcoin. And now I'm going to... What's not something you envisioned for Bitcoin? Institutions get putting their money into Bitcoin. opting. I'm just saying, like I'm like if Satoshi Nakamoto decided that hey, this is not what I envisioned uh, for Bitcoin. Oh, so that they came back and was like, exactly. you know, screw this. I'm just gonna like yeah. try to do something that I think might wreck everything. Exactly. So transfer all my Bitcoin onto this exchange, place a market order, and totally dump the market. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So like that was well, this isn't what coding Jesus talked about, but th- that this is one of the threats to Bitcoin is if this anonymous person comes back and accesses their bitcoin it's so funny that satoshi is a is a threat but it's true um it, it's uh if they came back it would definitely cause a disturbance at the very least very very large disturbance yeah i think it'd be temporary all things considered because i think yeah. that bitcoin's bigger than satoshi i think and it's bigger than satoshi could like ever imagine really that's but who knows we don't know very differently big anyway yeah. so th- so that was the first thing that uh coding jesus said is um like bitcoin is not what was envisioned what bitcoin was envisioned to use be used for in the first place which is cash it's way more than cash it's become an investment uh class it's become an asset that people buy that rich people buy quote unquote to uh preserve their wealth the the usual counter argument to the 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 argument that bitcoin is not cash is that the lightning network exists and and i'm wondering if this bitcoin not bitcoin coding jesus uh mentioned anything about the lightning network and the capacity for it to restore 
Bitcoin as cash. I the, I think that the perspective that he was bringing is Bitcoin as it is, is not what it started as back in 2009. So like, just the saying that even if a Latin network exists, even if tomorrow liquid is something that becomes main, used mainstream, even if strike is something that is used um, for, if strike uses Bitcoin as a, their main payment and settling channel, settlement channel, I don't think that would change what quoting Jesus had to say because to him, Bitcoin has lost what it was meant to do in the from first his place. opinion from though. his opinion his perspective like right. so i'm not saying that that particular argument put me off but it definitely made me think that oh that's that's right like bitcoin was supposed to be something that third-party institutions uh, you don't need third-party institutions for to send money across borders uh, and now it's become this uh, thing that increases in purchasing power because it's pegged to the um, like two currencies all around the world. Well, you measure Bitcoin in terms of the U.S. dollar or fiat currency, and yeah. as those inflate, pegged in that sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, well, like, okay, so hang on. Yeah. Um, with respect to that chain of thought, I have come to the consensus that Bitcoin was handed to the people. Yes. The one of the things that we say about Bitcoin is the story that it has. It doesn't really necessarily have a founder because they're not active. They haven't been active since what 2014. Right. Excuse me. And it's kind of handed to the people at this point, so people will do what they decide to do with it. So, like, sure, it's not what it started out to be. It's different. Some people will say it's bigger. Some people will just say it's it's not what it's meant to be. And some people will just say it's different. So I'm, I'm of the school of saying that it's different. I won't say it's better or worse. It's just different. It's taking, it's molding it in, sh in its shape as time passes and only time will tell what Bitcoin ends up being in the longer term. It'll probably continue to transform in a variety of ways as well. This is true. Yeah. I'm, I'm personally looking forward to it. And I like the the conclusion or the consensus that you reached that it's different than what it was set out to be in the beginning. And that may have been one of the reasons why Satoshi left in the first place, um, because they may have seen themselves as a risk to the project, like their identity. The, every passing uh, day that they remained online working on the project and communicating with people was probably a day that um, was a risk to the project itself to, to have their identity exposed. And as soon as their identity could have been exposed, that like that risk for Bitcoin is, is amplified because suddenly it has a founder, right? Because so Satoshi's anonymity is really important to the project uh, because Bitcoin has no founder in that therefore it belongs to the people. But as soon as you expose Satoshi, uh, then you can point to who it, uh, who it may have been. And that person has a nationality. They have a race, a gender, an age. and that's uh, Or they might have a collection of those things because, of course, they could have been a group. Yeah. And that's what you wrote about in your just latest newsletter, AK. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah it, it was actually a really nice way to encompass what Satoshi has become a symbol for. I wanted to touch on one last thing just from the newsletter. And this was... Like while I was writing it, I kind of discovered or uh, thought about this a little a little harder, and that's that. Okay, Satoshi has a million Bitcoin. Uh, when Bitcoin reaches, uh, let's just what will it have to be? Basically, it'll have to be two hundred thousand U.S. dollars a piece. Satoshi will be the richest person or entity in the world, but Satoshi is no one. 
And for the first time in history, we'll have no one be the richest person in history. So we're all pointing to, okay, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, uh, Bill Gates. These were the past richest people in the world. But when Satoshi is the richest, then then no one will be the richest. And that will be a really interesting paradigm. I wonder if that will enter the zeitgeist in any meaningful way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I really do like that part um, in your newsletter. <laughs> and also, like, if Satoshi does come to the world stage again, claiming themselves to be Satoshi, then then they would be the richest person in the world. Right. The one person in the group of people. Anyway, so that was the first thing that Code and Jesus said. The second thing that he said was about the censorship resistance that people talk about with respect to Bitcoin. So you've probably heard us say this. We've definitely said this before. Is Bitcoin is censorship resistant? But then he pulled up some articles that were published in Coin on CoinDesk. And also he used to work at Chain Analysis, I think, which is a, a blockchain forensics company. And he talked about how the tools that companies have built to be able to trace anything and everything that takes place on the Bitcoin blockchain can map exactly who made what transactions on Bitcoin. So he comes from the thinking of Bitcoin being an anonymous currency, and it's just not that anymore. Um, in our, Keegan, in yours and my opinion, Bitcoin was always a pseudonymous currency. It, it never was completely anonymous because it's a public ledger. And you can, anyone can look into the transactions that take place on the Bitcoin network at all times. And every single transaction that has taken place on the Bitcoin network is available to the public to view at any point in time. So like in that sense, if something is so public, um, it's again, it's, it's pseudo anonymous. Well, the, I think the reason why it, was, it is pseudo anonymous or pseudonymous is uh, because of the role that exchanges play. Yeah, right. It doesn't be so it's by nature pseudo anonymous. And then when you combine it with the data provided by the exchanges, uh, it becomes not anonymous whatsoever. Um, so that that being said, you can still remain fairly anonymous slash pseudo anonymous if you never have your Bitcoin touch an exchange. That's, That's actually pretty, pretty well done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, well, yes, that this is true in one case, but I think that he was coming from the perspective of, oh, well, like when he used to mine Bitcoin, right? Like in his living room or whatever, computer, whatever. Um, and when he mined Bitcoin, he received Bitcoin from the blockchain network. And then he passed it around to his friends. All he needed was a public address and no one could trace who he was on the Bitcoin network because he got Bitcoin directly from mining Bitcoin. Now that's impossible for someone like you and I Keegan to do in our living room because the the like we just wouldn't have enough um, computing power to be able to get Bitcoin from right. Bitcoin mining. Right. Um, so like it's a necessity almost that if we want to get Bitcoin, we have to sell fiat in order to receive Bitcoin. Right. And um, that has been a huge contributor to the anonymity of anyone transacting on the Bitcoin network not being the case anymore. So his, so wait, I started talking about anonymity, but I started off by saying censorship resistance. Well, it's it actually kind of plays into the, yeah, the same true. the same vein because if your identity can be exposed, then. Uh, well, I mean, worst case scenario, someone can come to your house that doesn't want you to make Bitcoin transactions and tie your hands behind your back. And that that's censorship. It, it's like most brutal form. Right. And 
But I mean, they still can't touch your wallet as long as that key is in your head, for example. Yeah, that's not what he was. He meant those. Okay, so let me continue to talk about what he said in this video. He said that exchanges, some exchanges, if they, um, oh gosh, I'm gonna have to give a little bit more context. So these blockchain forensics companies like Chain Analysis, and there's multiple others out there. They blacklist certain Bitcoin public addresses. And they, the reason they do that is if they can associate it with a criminal or a terrorist of sorts. Uh, now, the reason why they would even get this public address is because the way Bitcoin works is if you want it to be received, if you want to receive Bitcoin, uh, you have to essentially give out your public address because there's no other way for you to receive your Bitcoin. So some criminals or terrorist groups, if in order to receive Bitcoin, they have to put it up digitally somewhere. Um, and this can be somewhere on the dark web, which can be crawled and the public address can be received. Or sometimes there's actually also been the terrorist groups holding um, like a, a sign a or flag a or a sign. Yeah, just on painted, pa the Bitcoin address painted on the this really long sign of sorts, this like cloth that it's been painted on saying that donate Bitcoin here. And that's how you know, okay, cool. This is This is a public address and now we can blacklist any transactions that go to this particular address or come from this particular address. So in that case, if some of those um, coins end up being on an exchange, then the exchange can block your account. And that's where, according Jesus was saying that, okay, well, if this can happen, then Bitcoin's really not censorship resistant because you will hear people say this, but then, you know, why do exchanges have the ability to censor your transactions? Um, so, you know, again, there's a caveat here is if you, uh, yeah, there's, oh my gosh, so many things. I, I can, I can take this, uh, the way I think about Bitcoin censorship and its privacy and its anonymity or lack there of it is that it's a good thing and a bad thing that it's pseudo anonymous, uh, like for the privacy advocates out there. And I do think that our financial privacy is being eroded now. Um, with uh, with the advent of more central bank digital currencies being uh, being invented by by countries and being pushed out, China, Canada, United States, etc., uh, that's that's a real risk for our financial privacy. And we we might want to adopt some private cryptocurrencies or put our Bitcoin on the Lightning Network for that. But at the same time, the uh, like the the ne'er do wells uh, of the of the world, the people who would do the who the ne'er do wells. What's that? I actually can't give you a definition, but it kind of just means like miscreants, miscreants and ne'er do wells. Like, can you say that slower? Miscreants. No, no, the other word. Ne'er do wells. I, I don't know where this word. Actually, I do know where this word comes from. If you've watched. Ne'er doers. No, ne'er do wells. Uh, <laughs> it comes from Recess, which is a cartoon I used to watch like a long time oh ago. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, anyway, like naysayers? No, not like naysayers. <laughs> it's its own word. I promise you All can right. Google it while I'm on my rant. Cool. If you really like no, to. No, it's fine. I don't know People how to spell it. People who would do bad in the world, <laughs> uh, they can also use Bitcoin Lightning Network in order to uh, hide their identity. Uh, I like to think of Bitcoin as money for everyone. And I don't mean money for everyone except this group, this group, this group, and this group. I mean money for everyone. That's what I like about Bitcoin. And if it was too private, then the governments really wouldn't like it that much. They like that they can track people's data about it, but they need to build tools to do it. And they need secondary and tertiary information in order to attribute people's identities 
to Bitcoin addresses and transactions. So if it's too private, then governments won't like it. And if it's not private enough, then the people won't like it. And it's it's amazing that Bitcoin's actually hit that weird sweet spot in the middle where it's it's private if you want it and you know how to use it. You actually do need quite a bit of technical knowledge in order to maintain your privacy on Bitcoin. But for the average user, uh, you know, you don't exactly care about your your Bitcoin privacy, just like you don't care about your financial privacy. I don't know. I well, this is like part of this nuanced argument is still what I'm debating in my head, because let, let's say right now it's terrorist groups that are whose coins are being blacklisted. And then if if uh, somebody else ends up getting them, um, exchanges can um, censor the Bitcoin transaction and of this person or just censor their account again like it is an exchange so if it never goes to an exchange and if it stays in bitcoin then you can't really be censored because you're not uh, putting up your identity on an exchange but like this can get even more nuanced when there's more control on blockchain forensics so right now if they're only blacklisting transactions from terrorist groups and criminals that are selling atrocious materials on the dark web what if tomorrow they decide, okay, someone who's protesting for the environment is bad because they are stopping the economic um, growth, growth of the oil of, industry, for uh, example. Yeah, that's a perfect example. Or someone saying, someone protesting for not killing sharks or not um, overfishing if they want to raise money for that and they're accepting um, Bitcoin transactions. If that gets blacklisted because some country decided that this is going to hurt the 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 black market or the you know whatever no, not, market. Not the black market, the no, free but, market. No, but e like even the even the black market though, like because you never know what sort of connections are required uh, in order for an economy to run. So, uh, sure, I'm making some assumptions here. The point being, if someone, if a government body or if some centralized authority decides that okay, you can't have people protesting about the environment because that's bad for the economy, then every single transaction that is sent in Bitcoin to that particular protesting uh, institution, that can get blacklisted too. And their accounts are you know, just as likely to get seized if they do need to convert Bitcoin into some sort of fiat in order uh, well, to like on. continue the protest. No, I got to condense that a little bit. So you're talking about someone sending Bitcoin to a protest, uh, address an address that is broadcasted as like hey this is the the address that's associated with saving sharks and let's just choose japan for example they can still use that bitcoin as money within their own network but if yeah they, that's true if, i'm not saying that on, they but can't. if they choose to send that bitcoin to an exchange that's when the government can provide that exchange with say hey the exchange there's this address I, I we agree. don't like it i'm yeah. with you like i'm i'm saying i'm just i'm saying exactly that so yeah thank cool. you for uh condensing it but but like it the point being, it still can be censored if someone decides that uh, that it should be censored. Right. And it's um, subjective. Right. So based on whatever government thinks what is bad or a company thinks is bad, that's that's the censorship mechanism right there. It's and we see that all the time. Right. Like Facebook, Twitter, they they subjectively censor what they consider to be to be bad. And yes, there's like councils of, uh, of social justice for Twitter and uh, and Facebook and the council decides what's what is bad. But uh, that, that can be a slippery slope. I think that's the general argument there. That's not the point. The, well, the, the point is that Bitcoin is not completely censorship resistant in this case, if it's on an exchange. 
that is really important to note here. So if Bitcoin is transacted on the Bitcoin network from one wallet to another, great. Bitcoin is not really, it's not uncensorable, but it can be censored. So the exchange is definitely one example. And you don't really own your Bitcoin if it's on an exchange anyway. Not so, your keys, not your crypto. Not your keys, not your crypto. And so if you are a group that is protesting for a, a cause of some sort, don't don't put your don't put it on an exchange. Don't put your exchange address out there and just just try to find Bitcoin, you know, can be accepted is money and can be transacted as money. So don't put it on an exchange. Now this is the second thing that he talked about with respect to censorship resistance. The, okay, so mining, right? Bitcoin mining. What do miners do? They verify transactions and then they add it to the blockchain. And then when you quote unquote mine a block, that's when a mining pool signs off their signature on this block and says, okay, we have verified these transactions. We found the answer to this very difficult problem. We're going to add this block to the blockchain and get the reward from the Bitcoin network for it. Now, there is one particular mining pool is what he mentioned. And then I think there's another one that I found in my research they can decide to only process transactions that are not on the OFAC list or are, are public addresses that are not blacklisted. Right, which the OFAC list is an international blacklist of Bitcoin addresses. Yeah. So he's like, you know, people say that Bitcoin is censorship resistant, but it's not. Because now if mining pools decide to censor transactions and they, if they deny tra processing transactions based on this list, then there is censorship for you. There that, is a counter argument against that. There's too, a like. really good counter argument against that. So that's one a blanket statement, right? Uh, mining Bitcoin, pools, Bitcoin is yeah. not a, a censorship resistant because mining pools can do this. It's like, well, mining pools aren't doing this. Well, some of them are. Uh, no, he, well, no, literally zero today no, are doing no, that. No, no, no. This he he gave an example of an article which I read, and then Ricardo Spagni, the founder of the founder, the lead developer of uh, Monero. Monero, said that it was a slippery slope. So it was an article that came out sometime in the past three years, and he said this happened because this this one particular mining pool censored one transaction. Okay, so here's the counter argument to uh, to mining pools being the nexus of censorship. Uh, so people all over the world contribute to these mining pools. So these mining pools don't they're not the owner of the warehouses that are actually mining Bitcoin they're the coordinators of the Bitcoin mining activity. And so if a mining pool says, hey, we're going to start censoring transactions, well, they're going to lose a lot of business. That, that mining pool is a business in and of itself. And they're competing for mining power from all the people around the world who do own these warehouses. And so if I'm a person that is against censorship, then I'm just going to say, okay, well, the pool I'm currently attached to says they want to censor stuff and I'm not for that. I'm just going to point my mining power to a different pool uh, that doesn't, that is not for censorship. That's not quite right. So Why is that not quite right? I'll tell you, because I did some more research on the block, uh, the the mining pools, and there's, I think the name is Blockseer. That's what I came across. And Blockseer is exclusively a mining pool that is maintained by another company, which is a blockchain forensics company. So that's the caveat there. Like a blockchain forensics company has a mining pool called Blockseer, and they are, I think, another kind of mining pool that will only... Um, process transactions that are not on any blacklist. So this I, this mining pool is owned by 
this block, this mining pool and blocks here is owned by this blockchain forensics company. As far as I can tell, I'll, I'll go look for this article, by the way, everyone is listening and put it in the store description so you can go check it out yourself. So like in that particular case, it's not people around the world who are contributing to the hash to rate of this mining particular pool. particular mining pool. Yeah. Right. And then the counter argument to that, that I found out uh, to put my mind at ease was that there are hundreds of mining pools all around the world. Um, or like a few very large mining pools, pools again all across the world. And then even if one mining pool um, denies processing one transaction because it's on the blacklist, it doesn't mean that another mining pool won't. The Let, beauty, the beauty, it, no, ahead. I'm not done. The beauty of the blockchain network, the Bitcoin blockchain network, is that transactions are uh, everyone has everyone in the whole entire world has access to these transactions. So if one pool denies processing it, another pool will not because they don't follow the same philosophical practices of censorship. So Bitcoin is not unsendable. It can be censored perhaps by one particular mining pool, but it can't be com denied completely. A transaction on the Bitcoin network cannot be denied completely from being sent because of these other mining pools that don't follow the same practices. Yeah, right on. That was very well done. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I was gonna like you, you using the example of like if one mining pool decides to censor, and I was just gonna take it to the nth degree, and let's just say like fifty percent or eighty percent of the mining pools decide that they are going to censor, and even then, what the, you struck on something really important. Your Bitcoin transaction is not unsendable. It's never unsendable. You can always broadcast a transaction. It's just whether or not that transaction is going to be picked up by miners, and there's all sorts of ways you can you can increase the incentive for your transaction to be picked up like you can just include a super high fee if you really need your transactions to be processed well the well that's yeah sure but an average person is you know not probably going to want to do that you said that even if 50 percent of miners are the are like um censor transactions i don't think that can ever be the case because they can't censor the same kind of transactions now the reason for that is because we still have geopolitical scenarios at play here so if the united states of america were blocked Seer is the mining pool. It operates out of the United States of America. So if they decide they're not going to um, uh, process any transactions off of this list, which I don't think is a worldwide blacklist, I think it's just a blacklist created by the USA. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't think there's. The, I don't the think OFAC the world. List? Yeah, I don't think the world is ever going to share blacklist addresses. Well, I thought it was an international body, like an international mm, no. protection body of sorts. P pretty sure it's not because. What's OFAC even stand for? You can look it up while I talk. <laughs> well, the thing is, um, because of the geopolitical environment, if the United States decides that they're going to censor transactions from this particular list, they will definitely be picked up by someone from a mining pool from China, for example, or a mining pool from Australia or a mining pool from the Netherlands. Like it does because like no one wants to um, take sides in this in this sense, like there's, I don't think the world will, world governments, not the world, but the world governments will come together and say, let us all um, censor these transactions. Besides, mining pools aren't really, uh, or mining farms aren't sanctioned by the government. So it's, even if governments did decide to do this, it's private companies and... Actually, you know what, I, Iran, how do you say it, Iran? Iran. Iran. Oh, Iran. Iran. Uh, they have government-sanctioned Bitcoin mining operations, and they're doing it for profit. So does Venezuela, for that matter. So the, you are seeing companies that are traditionally under sanctions boot up mining pools and 
they will probably choose different transactions to censor. Maybe if they detect that that transaction has come from the United States of America, they want to censor that, but they'll, they'll let other transactions go through. Point is that there's no one government in the world that really has the power to, to censor any and all transactions that take place. And that was is that eventually what you discovered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. I'm, I don't know what you said. It's probably right. OFAC? Oh, I was, so yeah, I'm just looking at the computer, folks. The Office of Foreign Assets Control is what yeah, OFAC stands for. Yeah, but it still says that OFAC sanctions this search tool employs fuzzy logic on it. But like this is under the U.S. Department of the Treasury list. I don't think that if it was a worldwide list, it would be on the U.S. Department of the Treasury list. Like, I think we would see UN.org or like some sort of organizational website instead of probably right. This dot like all of this is under Treasury.gov. So, so should we talk about blanket statements now? No, I'm actually thinking, Keegan, we should make this a two-parter because like all all of the things that we've discussed on this particular episode are so different from most of the things that we discover. Uh, sorry, discuss and like I want to make a list of the other two or three things that Coding just still said on his video, so we can make this a two-parter and like talk more. I don't in depth. want to make it a two-parter. You don't want to make it a two-parter. I want to. I want to keep going. We're on a roll. You're on a roll. Yeah, but shout out to our audio engineer, Kaushik, uh, <laughs> where I just don't want him to process a one hour long um, podcast. Well, let's record it now and decide whether or not <laughs> it's a two-parter later. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for, for listening to that little conversation that we had. Okay, so that was the, what was the, that was that the second point, censorship resistance? Yeah. Okay, so that was that. And then the thing, fungibility. Oh my gosh. Okay, so that this was the part that really put me through existential angst is uh, the fungibility of Bitcoin. Now, okay, fungibility. Let's quickly make sure that our audience knows what fungibility is. Yeah, go for it. Uh, we've talked about this in, in our episode for NFTs, which is non-fungible tokens. But again, fungibility is the aspect of anything that proves its uniqueness um, or lack thereof. So if something is fungible, it means it's like everything else. Its parts are like everything else. or Its, it's parts are like everything. Basically, it's not unique. There's nothing unique about something that has the quality of fungibility. Now, Bitcoin is said to be a fungible asset, which means one Bitcoin is like every other Bitcoin. A quick counter example, not a quick, but a quick example is if you had $1 bill and if you put $1 bill aside another dollar bill, they are not fungible because they have a serial number that um, basically determines that one dollar bill is different from another dollar bill. But they are fungible in the sense that we you can, can still purchase something worth one dollar with them right now they are not fungible if one of those one dollar bills has the signature of a baseball player or a celebrity or a president yeah if johnny depp signs on one one dollar bill then that increases in value significantly because now it's not it's not not unique like it is unique now it's not like every other one dollar bill because now this is the only one dollar bill that has the signature of johnny depp on it so that's fungibility. So with respect to Bitcoin, something that people say is Bitcoin is fungible. Every single Bitcoin is every other, like every other Bitcoin. So if Bill Gates uses one Bitcoin for whatever, then and then a farmer in Kenya uses that same kind of Bitcoin, and like no one's gonna know the difference between who used what. It doesn't really change in value. Well, Coding Jesus said 
that that's not the case. And he divided it into three kinds of, he labeled the fungibility of Bitcoin into three labels or two categories. One of them was that um, tainted Bitcoin. So I'll just name all of them first. So there's tainted Bitcoin, there's normal Bitcoin, and then there's premium Bitcoin. So tainted Bitcoin is Bitcoin that has been used um, by terrorist groups or for terrorist activity. And the reason why it's called tainted Bitcoin is if it is on the list of, um, if it is blacklisted. So essentially uh, when, when blockchain forensics teams um, trace Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain, they they put, uh, they they put an alert. They organize them into baskets and they basically put an alert out for any Bitcoin that has come from a particular address, essentially making it tainted Bitcoin. Then there's normal Bitcoin that hasn't been used for uh, any activities such as this and hasn't been Bitcoined and is used, used for normal day-to-day -day people. And there's premium Bitcoin, which is Bitcoin that is newly freshly minted uh, that well, only the miners have access to because they get rewarded Bitcoin from the Bitcoin blockchain for mining Bitcoin. So he said that uh, like fungibility is not a thing in Bitcoin because Bitcoin, because there's tainted Bitcoin, thanks to blockchain forensics, and there's normal Bitcoin, and then there's premium Bitcoin that can be traded at a premium price because it's freshly minted, because it has no history whatsoever of being used for any illicit purposes. Or anything at all, for that matter. Yeah, anything at all, because it's just freshly received by the mining um, pools. Right, and so I, I like this conversation because, on the one hand, Bitcoin is definitely not fungible in the sense that uh, any transaction or any Bitcoin that's in your wallet has a unique history to it, and that uniqueness makes it non-fungible, uh, makes it your Bitcoin more uh, unique to you because it's now in your wallet and it's not in any anyone else's wallet. Uh, and the Bitcoin's not interchangeable necessarily. But let's just go back to the, the two $1 bill example for a second. They both have different serial numbers on them, but they will, they're will they both exchangeable for a $1 worth of value at a store, right? No one's going to say, okay, no, I don't want that dollar bill because it's got that serial number on it, right? So in that sense, uh, you can still spend your Bitcoin regardless of, of its history, uh, as long as that person that you're spending it unless with. Unless it's being censored. Right, exactly. Unless they're doing a like on-the-spot check on your Bitcoin address. And uh, who knows? I, I don't know anyone doing that quite yet, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, this that really kind of broke me a little bit inside because I was like, oh my gosh, this is true. And it sent me down the path of understanding what even determines the fungibility of Bitcoin in, in the first place. So then we no. talked to Brad, we talked to Brad there, Brad Mills. Brad Mills. And uh, he was saying that, okay, well, premium Bitcoin, I've never heard of that, nor have I heard of that being done anywhere in the world, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. If, uh, if yeah, if one coding, person hasn't heard, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Right. If Coding Jesus worked at chain analysis, then he's probably deriving some of his opinions and, uh, off of what they've actually put in practice, right? Right. So chain analysis might be tagging these Bitcoin. And I mean, I believe that that's the case. I just don't know whether or not they'd actually trade at a premium. And yeah, that's sure, true. Let's let but them like, trade at a premium. That sounds that's good. That's an answer that I'm, I don't know if you could say that that sounds good because it's, I, I don't know. Can you still say it's a free market if there's um, a market that is only formed between miners and i don't know terrorist groups or someone wants to hide the fact that they've used bitcoin for whatever purposes 
I think that there's sufficient safeguards in place to protect against nefarious people using Bitcoin. Like the 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 episode with Larry Cameron really convinced me on that. Like if if they need to to turn that money into uh, like if they need to turn that Bitcoin into any fiat currency, but that's an if. That's a big if. Like let's say 10, 20 years down the line, when Bitcoin is used as money, then they probably wouldn't need to um, change it to fiat. True. I wonder what's going to happen. That that's actually one of the things that terrifies me most about about Bitcoin in general is uh, and the, and it's rising in prices. The the people on this planet that would do bad or ba- do bad deeds, they're getting rich. Just just as the same as everyone that is not bad people, they're also getting rich. But it's a it's a it's money for everyone, and so that comes with the implication that uh, that it's going to make some very bad people very rich someday. Yeah, perhaps. Um, but this is yeah that the part about fungibility really messed with my belief of bitcoin being um you know the the perfect currency but it isn't and i'm actually really glad that i came across that reason because uh, nothing is perfect why would i ever believe that something is perfect right so um, it was a huge you know kick in my gut to like me believing that oh my gosh this is this like golden child of currencies was there a last reason um, I'm trying to think. I think there was one more, but um, give me a second. Why don't you fill in the time? Sure. Uh, I can. I'm actually kind of bad at doing this when I'm <laughs> being put on the spot. Like, hey, why don't you just talk about something? And then I just end up describing how I'm bad at this. Uh, so earlier today, uh, Maruga was reading some articles about the environmental impact. And the first sentence of uh, this is why I wanted to talk about blanket statements earlier. Uh, the, the first sentence was, oh, geez, I'm just going to go find it. It was hilarious. I wonder if it's up right now. The one to the right. One more, yeah, one more. Cool. Any company that supports Bitcoin is making one thing clear. They don't care about the environment. I love that statement. That's great. That's that's powerful. Uh, that's a blanket statement. We, we don't believe in blanket statements here. Uh, we don't think that the world is as black and white as, uh, well, it's just not black and white in general. It's uh, like, I feel like the world is more of a, a this and that rather than a this or that, just in general, just as a philosophical blanket statement. <laughs> that was ironic. Maruga, I am struggling to fill in the time here. <laughs> You're going to have to help me out here and, and come up with what you were thinking about. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, I don't, I know that there was at least one more thing, but I can't seem to remember it right this second. Cool. I'm going to talk about something else now. Okay. Yeah. So my Bitcoin journey. When I, I bought Bitcoin at uh, at $500, but at that time, I totally thought I missed the boat. It was uh, because when it was $500, it was like $250 just recently. It was like just a month ago that it was $200. And I was like, oh, okay, it's doubled recently. I don't know how high Bitcoin can actually go. I missed the boat. And I got bitter about that. And I started looking for all sorts of reasons uh, about like against Bitcoin, anti-Bitcoin. And I found them. I found a whole host of reasons. And it actually delayed me from buying Bitcoin even longer. Uh, and uh, that that was unfortunate. So I think that for the people that think they missed the boat out there, you really got to understand that you're not too late on Bitcoin. We're just we're just in the early stages. If anybody thinks that, you know, you know what, I'm not going to say anything. I'm still I'm still in my 
um, phase of completely understanding how Bitcoin is human. If I, if, you know, even if I was to say, uh, because it's not perfect. So like pre me understanding anything ab about the weaknesses of Bitcoin, I would say if you think you're too late to buy Bitcoin, then you were buying Bitcoin for the wrong reasons. True. And that's because you don't completely understand why any hardcore Bitcoiner is telling you to not hold any government money. Yeah. That was that. But right now, I'm in a state of uh, meditating on my belief system <laughs> with Bitcoin. So I'll have more to say later. But we still think it's uh, you do, okay, okay. I just have a couple follow up questions. Just just to end this thing uh, and, and round it all off. Uh, you still think that Bitcoin is the best money in the world? I'm not going to answer that. Because like, I'm not going to say this is the best at that. And like, uh, I, I, I just... No, I'm not going to answer that question. Okay, can you tell me why you don't think it's the best? Because money is so many things. Uh, like, is it the best sort of monetary policy? Or mo does it have the best monetary structure? I don't know. Because if I was to say yes, I would be doing a, a misjustice, injustice. What's that injustice. word? Injustice, you, you would be right. Doing injustice I would be doing injustice to all of the monetary policies around the world implemented by governments that i don't even know about that's a really good answer thank you well we only are aware of what the us is doing largely then a little bit about canada i know a little bit about india but there's what 192 countries in the whole wide world i don't want to base bitcoin being the best currency or best money of them all because i only know what one country does with its money that's amazing i love that that lovely balance that you just struck there it's a yeah, it just says, okay, regards, she's got a nice balanced perspective here. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, maybe when I have, at least even if I knew what 80% of the countries are doing with their monetary policy, I'd be able to make a fair judgment as to whether or not Bitcoin is the best. But right now I can't. Do you think that there's a currency out there that you you would just stumble upon? You'd be like, oh, this is this is better than Bitcoin. It's like Finland or something. And then you go turn on it doesn't Bitcoin matter. Finish. It really doesn't matter Corona. because like Bitcoin is a, a global currency. Like I know that. And every other currency is for its particular, um, is local to it, its government. So I just, there's no comparison there in, in like in that aspect. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. So we'll, we'll Why don't you take us more. out? Yes, <laughs> for sure. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. You, you know, we love questions. I hope that if you've been with us so far you know that we're very personable people and very open-minded as well so if you have anything to add to the episode that we just recorded today if you want to share your experiences we'd love to hear from you so email us at ready at gofull crypto that's r-e-a-d-y at g-o-f-u-l-l-c-r-y-p-t-o.com and we look forward to your messages awesome thanks everyone take care stay tuned